this summer. An all-star cast. In a world without electricity. Who will stand up against reason? Oscar Award winner Ray Comfort. Not from a library, Pastor John Hagee. Academy Award winners Joel Osteen's Teeth. Sundance nominee Deepak Chopra. Raylene, this is the bit where we're not meant to speak. <laughs> the Unbelievables. I came from a world you don't know anything about. If I asked you, do you believe in electricity or gravity, you would find that a ridiculous question. Osteen, throw me your tooth. We were born before television, can you imagine that? The infinite void, you might say. Stand back, guys, I'm about to engage the 8 horsepower solid gold. And there we were, before penicillin. You and I right now are an activity of the universe. Before the frisbee and before Xerox and before the pill. We were before radar. I've never said I'm an expert. Individual particles coming out of the so-called quantum vacuum. We were the last generation dumb enough to think you needed to have a husband. It's intellectual suicide. Why is there universe? Why is there awareness? A film by George Ford. Herd mentalists, hear me. First up, my genuine thanks to the following tithers to the show. So that would be Larice, Brian, Julie, somebody called RP, Melanie, and somebody who goes by the enigmatic letter H. You guys are helping to build a sustainable podcast, and for that, I thank you. Second cab off the rank tonight, many of you will have heard the episodes 40 and 41 where I discuss Iman's situation with her. So I've been in touch with Iman over the last couple of months, ever since that took place. We raised $12,300 for her, and it was community generosity that did it. It was a wonderful job, and I think we should all be very proud of that effort. I don't want to get her back on and put her through that again, but what I do know is that shortly after that interview, she lost her job and went through a period of hardship and never got the holiday. The money we raised just helped her and her family survive. The good news is now Iman has a job. So this is at one godless woman, and I suggest giving her a follow on Twitter. She's a wonderful person. She doesn't need to know about what I'm about to do, but you guys do. I've built the herd mentality holiday cow. It's a life-size cow built out of an old sink and old fence palings. It's 100% recycled. I've stripped it, polished it, lacquered it, bolted it together. It can be disassembled easily and reassembled easily. It's a beautiful garden ornament. There's only one of these that's ever going to be made. It took me forever to build and get to the point where I could auction it. So that's what we're going to do. Iman's holiday was originally valued at about $4,000 so her family could get away. She never got it. So I'd like the auction to approach that. Now bear in mind, this is made of wood. It's quite big. It's 1.2 metres by 1.2 metres by 60 centimetres. And it weighs 25 kilos. And the shipping will be at the winner's expense. And I just had a a very quick look online. It would cost about $1,000 to ship. So this is not a cheap purchase for the person who wins. But there's a few benefits here. The person who wins the auction gets something tangible. 
and they get to feel good about having something unique and herd mentalist-ish. The second thing is, is that person would be able to fund an entire holiday for Imang, and I think that's a very worthwhile cause. So we're not giving a handout, we're helping Iman to help herself. And she has got a job, she's back on track, she's feeling a lot brighter about things, but I think she still needs that holiday before she takes her attack at a court. So you can head to herdmentalitypodcast.com, and on the front page, there's a link to the eBay auction, and you'll be able to bid throughout the course of the month for the Herd Mentality Holiday Cow. And just remember, everything that you bid on this is going to Iman's holiday. And I, I think everyone would agree that's a very worthy cause. Very briefly, I'm on an upcoming episode at scathingatheist.com. It's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. It's 30 minutes. It flies whenever you listen to it. Very entertaining. I suggest you go and check it out if you haven't already. And support their Patreon at patreon.com slash scathingatheist. On the website, a lot of people have been asking whether or not they can get T-shirts and cups and so forth branded with Herd Mentality stuff. I have set one up. You can go to herdmentalitypodcast.com. I get a portion of that. That goes towards paying for the show. And of everything I get, 10% goes to kiva.org. So we've got a fantastic show coming up this week. I have a very quick chat with an author called Jim Reaver. And if you stick around for the bonus material at the end of the show... He reads a chapter from his book called The Champion of Reason, and it's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. I really do encourage you to listen to that. And then there's some other news in that the book is going to be available for free from the 1st until the 4th of May. So listen in for details on that. And we've got Lawrence Krauss coming up. So hashtag size. This is going to be good fun. I'm going to learn stuff. I hope you all learn something too. Everybody enjoy the show and take care. Welcome to The Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, at Adam Reeks on Twitter, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, down the line with me, I've got a wonderful author who goes by the name Jim Reaver, because that's his name. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Adam. Now, you've written a wonderful book called The Champion of Reason. Uh, what's the brief synopsis? Well, it's a uh, thinking man superhero who battles for truth, justice, in a rational way. It's set in the fictional town of Adelton. I took from the word Adel, where religion reigns over science and um, superstition is all over the place. So I came across your work through your website, jimreaver.com, and there's an audio a portion of an audio book where you do a reading of a chapter from The Champion of Reason, I thought it was wonderful. It's aimed primarily at teenagers, but I gained so much out of it. You very kindly have offered to put it on the end of this show as bonus material, and we'll get you on again in the future to have a, a lengthy chat. But there was something that you wanted to just mention to people who are listening to the show. Well, one thing is that the book, The Champion of Reason, will be free at Amazon from May 1st through March through May 4th. Even if they don't have a Kindle, they can still get it with a free Kindle app and on any on any device, um, smartphone, tablet, or computer. During those days, so that's May the 1st that's right, to the 4th? That's right. May 1st through May 4th. May the 4th. That's the uh, Star Wars day, is it not? I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I do know that May 1st is 
National Day of Reason here. And that's as good a day as any to go and get your hands on a free copy of this book, guys. I really do recommend it. Jim, thank you very much for your time and uh, overcoming the technological hurdles to get Skype up and running. I'll get you back on very shortly on another episode. Thank you very much, Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, down the line with me, I've got Professor Lawrence Krauss. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming on. It's nice to be here. Virtually, yes. We do all of our stuff virtually uh, via cosmic Skype. Yes. <laughs> You've very kindly come on the show to brief us a little on dark matter and dark energy. So let's jump straight into it. What's the distinction between the two? What's the layman's way of, a cheat's way of remembering the difference between the two? And, and what are they? It's really quite simple. One sucks and one blows. Simple as that. It, yeah, dark matter matter is some new type of material that appears to dominate the, the mass of our galaxy and all galaxies we can see by at least a factor of 10 compared to normal matter. We think it's a new type of elementary particle and therefore quite exotic. It's something not not found in any materials on Earth and the particles interact so weakly that we think they go right through the Earth without even knowing it was there. But they are particles just like we think, just like other particles like protons and neutrons and electrons and they fall in the gravitational field and clump. And in fact, we think they're they're responsible for the reason that our galaxy formed. They clumped together and the normal matter fell into the potential wells and all the stars and planets and humans and aliens and everything else that are in the universe. Dark energy, however, is much more exotic because it is an energy that appears to be associated with literally nothing, with empty space. Empty space, if you get rid of all the particles and radiation, appears to weigh something. We don't have the slightest idea why, but if you put energy in empty space, according to general relativity, it actually is gravitationally repulsive, not attractive. And it is causing the expansion of the universe to speed up and has, for the last five billion years, been causing the expansion of the universe to speed up and it Looks like it may do that into the indefinite future. That discovery, of course, was made by several groups, one of whom includes my good friend and Australian Brian Schmidt, who won the Nobel Prize or shared the Nobel Prize for that discovery. So we're expanding. This was only a relatively recent discovery, the mid-90s, was it not? Uh, yes, mid-90s. Although I have to, to be self-serving, I, I can point out that we, we first proposed it in 1995, and then they discovered it in 1998. And what are we expanding into? Well, that's a misnomer. Most people think if you're expanding, you have to expand into something, but you actually don't. If you imagine a balloon expanding, of course, it's embedded in a three-dimensional space, and it looks like it's expanding into the room. But if you, you could just consider, if you want, the surface of the balloon and imagine that that's all there is. There is no outside or inside. It's just a two-dimensional universe. Then as the balloon gets bigger, every point on the balloon moves away from any other point, but the balloon isn't expanding into anything. Or take an infinite rubber bed sheet and stretch it. It's not expanding into anything because it was already infinite. It's just getting everything's moving apart. And both of those possibilities might describe the universe in which we live. Just going back to a point you made earlier, how do we measure that the universe is expanding? Is it simply the redshift? Is, is that how we came up with the hypothesis and were able to then test it? Well, we well we first tested it and then came up with the hypothesis. It was ah. first observed. We measure uh, the reception velocity of distant galaxies, which we can do, as you pointed out, by the fact that light shifts when galaxies are moving away from us due to something called the Doppler effect. The light shifts to longer wavelengths. And it was discovered by, you know, by accident in some sense in 1929 by Edwin Hubble that the farther away galaxies were, the faster they seemed to be moving away from us. That, of course, has been validated over the last hundred years and uh, measured with 
increasing precision. So we now know the rate at which the universe is expanding to an accuracy of a better than 5%. And it comes primarily from measuring the speed at which galaxies are moving away from us. Of course, no scientific measurement is independent of everything else. With Science isn't just a story with several independent facts. Each result impacts on other results. And if the universe is expanding, you can ask how old it is. And it turns out to be about 13.8 billion years old if you measure the expansion of the universe is what you'd get. Well, it turns out many independent ways of measuring the age of the universe tell us that it's 13.8 billion years old. So everything hangs together. It's not just a single observation. And why is any of this useful? Where are the practical applications? Is learning more about dark matter and dark energy going to help us travel amongst the stars? Well, you know, I'm always amazed when people ask what use it is, because if I were playing a Mozart concerto for you, when I finished, I doubt the first question you'd ask is, well, what use is that? Is it going to make a better, faster car? Or if you went to a museum and saw a Picasso painting, would you say, well, that's useless. I'm not going to help me get home any faster. These are understanding our place in the universe is a central part of being human, understanding every Everyone, since the time they're born, asks where did they come from and, and where are they going? It's the kind of, and the fact that we're beginning to get closer to addressing these questions is something we should celebrate, independent of any possible practical benefits. Now, with new knowledge comes the possibility of developing new technologies, but that's not the reason we do that. The we, reason we do it is to know more and to understand ourselves better. I say it as a sort of tongue-in-cheek question because a practical application from being able to study the stars was that it was then uh, modified and used to detect breast cancer. Anytime you use new technology at the cutting edge or develop it for any purpose, there's going to be side benefits. There's going to be chaos that, that were unexpected. And that's just a property of developing new technology. And, and so we can expect... I mean, the technology of the Hadron Collider, which is looking at the fundamental structure of matter, well, of course, as you well know, at CERN, the technology of the World Wide Web was developed, which changed our lives. We're using it right now to be able to talk to each other. And it came out of an, a rather esoteric particle physics experiment in Geneva. So spinoffs are important, but but that's not they're not the reason you do it. But we should realize that every time we try to push the frontiers of empirical knowledge further, that requires the development of new technology, and that always has some benefits, uh, side benefits. One thing that's often pointed out is that the sum total of the universe is zero. The sum total of energy in the universe. It's, I don't know if it's that often pointed out, but I pointed it out in my book. The public has become more aware of it, perhaps. But anyway, go on. So what was the trigger then to separate the matter from the energy and push the That's universe away, do we know? Converted. Uh, and the point is, that if, if the total energy of the universe is nothing, it costs no energy to produce it in the first place. And moreover, quantum mechanical effects will tell you out of nothing come fluctuations all the time. And if you can create zero energy fluctuations, then they're allowed to last forever. And so if all the matter in our universe adds up to zero total energy, then you could easily create it by quantum mechanical fluctuations. In fact, not only could you easily create it, it's required. If you wait long enough, it must happen, because in quantum mechanics, more or less everything that can happen will happen. Fluctuations are happening all the time. And so the question, as I often say, why is there something rather than nothing, is, is not surprising. The surprising thing would be why is there nothing rather than something. If there were, we wouldn't be here to have this conversation. Well... The chances of us being here to discuss this are one, as is evidenced by us being here. It's <laughs> a great thing about doing things after the fact. Your your probabilities are much easier to determine. <laughs> so, so with all this quantum talk, do you think it's possible that Deepak Chopra might be onto something? Deepak Comfort. Bless 
of the universe? Not absolutely not, because I'm absolutely convinced that Jeepak Chopra doesn't understand quantum mechanics beyond the, <laughs> beyond what the words mean. If anyone abuses quantum mechanics more, I don't know of it. Anyone, he uses it to hoodwink people into thinking that not only that he understands it, but that somehow it connects them to the universe in rather new age mystical ways. And it is complete nonsense, complete garbage, and it is an offense that anyone takes that man seriously. I concur wholeheartedly. And in all of your experience and research, have you ever found any evidence that might suggest a God? No, I haven't, and no one else has. I mean, <laughs> the point is that, it's, that God is irrelevant to science. Most people think it's an important question to scientists. It's not. In the 30-some-odd years I've been going to scientific meetings, I've never heard the word God mentioned once, because we just care how the universe works. And trying to learn how the universe works, we discovered laws of nature that describe how the universe works. And and God never ever even enters into it. As my friend Steve Weinberg, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist and an atheist, says, most scientists don't even think enough about God to know if they're atheists. There is no evidence of purpose to the universe. Now, that doesn't apply. That From that, we cannot say that there is no purpose, but there is no evidence. And in fact, given everything we see, I think it's fair to say it's highly unlikely. So we can't rule out the existence of God, but we can say that the issue is largely irrelevant for understanding how we got here. The wording highly unlikely is important because I almost never say there is no God. I say it's highly unlikely that the God well, as described have, by your Bible exists. To say that. I mean, in science, we, we, things are either likely or unlikely. We, we, the great thing about science is there are no universal truths for the most part, unlike religion. Views keep evolving as we do new experiments. And we can't prove something to be right. We can prove it to be wrong. So we can't prove something in the negative in some sense. We can't say there is no God just because there's no evidence. What we could say is if there were evidence, we could say, wow, something's happening. If tonight the stars aligned and in ancient Aramaic spelled out, I am here, well, then I might suggest that there's something to the whole idea. Mm -hmm. So while we're on the topic, there is some evidence that you're appearing in a film shortly. Yes, there's good evidence of that. Oh, excellent. Talk us through it. Well, uh, we've actually appeared in the film once. We we actually had our, our Australian debut, if you wish, at the Sydney Opera House with the Festival of Dangerous Ideas earlier in, let's see, last year, I guess. It's a movie called The Unbelievers, much of which was filmed, by the way, in Australia. Uh, and it follows Richard Dawkins and myself around the world as we discuss science and reason and dialogues that we've had together on TV programs, debating various people in rallies. And it's really, as, as the directors would say, the reason they created it is they wanted to create a rock and roll tour film about science. And, and it is their science there, and I think there's humor, and I think there's a narrative flow. And it's um, the young directors, I think, did a wonderful job. And I'm a little biased, but it's even <laughs> in spite of that bias, I think it's a fun movie. Well, we had Gus Holwerder on this show to discuss the film a few uh -huh. episodes ago. And I asked him for some gossip on, on you and Richard Dawkins, and I suppose it's only fair to give you some something of an opportunity to give us some hot gossip on Gus. Oh, Gus and, and his brother Luke, who are the co-directors, are wonderful young men. So all I can say is that it was a pleasure to be with them. I kind of feel like they're the sons I never had, because <laughs> in the making of the movie, they'd never been to Australia. We, we actually decided to make that movie three weeks before we left for Australia, which really is amazing. And Gus and Luke put together two teams of people to do that. And so we went, they'd never been to Australia then. They'd never been to England, to London, to Oxford, or other place we filmed. They'd never been to New York City, to Washington, to San Francisco. 
It was so much fun to travel around the world with them. And they were polite and wonderful, as wonderful and polite as you can be while sticking a camera in someone's face for many hours every day. And they took 120 hours of footage, I know. And from that produced a 77 minute long film. And we were in the process able to get several friends and celebrities, you might say, to also appear in the film. Um, so it's not just Richard and me, but there's some well-known names as well. And while we can't announce any release dates, it is coming out soon. Yeah, it'll be released worldwide digitally um, sometime this summer in the U.S. or winter in Australia um, on iTunes and Amazon and video on demand. And it will also appear, it's already appeared on TV in several countries, last week in Denmark, I think, and Finland. And I believe it may appear soon on TV in, in Australia. The deals are being made. But it will be available worldwide digitally and with DVD this summer. I can't give you the date now. We also, from time to time, it's screened in different places, as it was at the Sydney Opera House. And, and it's screened. I just came back from Prague, Czechoslovakia, where it was screened at a, a film festival. And, and I'll be going to Canada, where it'll be screened in a few weeks. So it's screening at various locations around the world as well, in, in theaters or large auditoriums. Fantastic. So, guys, keep an eye out for it. Last question. Have you got any upcoming science projects? What sort of real science projects are you elbow deep in at the moment? There are lots of new discoveries that are exciting, and I've been thinking a lot about the new fantastic discovery, potential discovery of gravitational waves from the Big Bang, which give us a picture, if it's correct, of the universe when it was a millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. And that turns much of metaphysics into physics. And, it, and of course, it involves areas I've been working on for some time. And so I've been thinking a lot about the implications of that new result for our understanding of the fundamental structure of matter. I've been also thinking about ways to detect dark matter, as I do. And of course, what might make up dark energy. Those are just a few of the areas I've been working in when I when I get a, a chance to do science, which happens every now and then <laughs> in the current world. <laughs> so we can look forward to a warp drive Prius in the very near future, by the sound of things, uh, at the rate we're going. <laughs> Well, you can look forward to one in science fiction books. I hope you'll be able to look forward to with some better electronic vehicles. But that's engineering, and I'm a physicist, as it is. Very well. Well, finally, I've acquired a copy of The Universe from Nothing, one of your recent books. and Only you've... one copy? Only one <laughs> copy. I, I've read it. It's wonderful. I'd like to draw a picture of the herd mentality cow in it and send it out to one of the people who support this show. And that person is uh, selecting from random Arcides from the state in the U.S. Is it Illinois? I-L? I-L is Illinois. Fantastic. Arcides, it'll be in the post to you later today. So thank you very much for supporting the show. Was there anything you, finally you'd like to plug? No, I didn't. I came to answer whatever questions you had. <laughs> I, I didn't come to sell books or movies. I hope. I hope people will enjoy the movie. It, it's provoked a lot of discussion in places where people have seen it. And, and so it's not meant to be a diatribe. It's not meant to be an atheist diatribe. It's meant to raise interesting questions and hopefully be entertaining. And as I say, my friends Woody Allen and Cameron Diaz and some other well-known names are in it as well. And so for people who like that sort of thing, they might enjoy that as well. Yeah, Gus was saying on the show that some of the initial responses from the audience when you did test screenings, were the most positive responses were from believers themselves who were likely yeah, to they, watch it again and, and recommend it to others. Yeah, the, overwhelmingly they recommended it to others, which surprised us. And the audience reaction has been great. You know, it's interesting to see the audience reaction versus some of the movie reviewers who I'm convinced that don't watch the movie. <laughs> but, you know, it's amazing how, as a male, it's interesting to me to see how often my clothes are referred to in the review of a movie when there's so little space. And so I, I, don't, I find that just so silly that it's kind of interesting. Well, Lawrence, thank you very much again for coming on and all the best with your upcoming projects. Thanks a lot and, and good luck with the program. Fantastic. Take care, Lawrence. Okay, take care. Hello, Herd Mentalists. 
It's questionable Adam here from the year 2074, and I'm using the time-space continuum to contact you with Iran's energy-efficient time machine. The world is a different place now. In this alternate timeline, I'm currently on the run from the FBI for providing a crime they call education to the public via a podcast. And Emperor Pat Robertson, who still isn't dead yet, has a price on my head. The logs show that in the last 60 years, the show has almost generated enough income for me to buy a new identity and smuggle myself into Saudi Arabia, which is now a haven for atheists, secularists and scientists. It's an expensive and risky move and one I must make soon, as this time-space cosmic phone line has been tapped by the NSA. But you can help! Spread news of the show to your friends using social media and write a terrible review for the herd mentality on iTunes or Stitcher. There are benefits to supporting the show. For example, $5 monthly donors receive a silly hand-drawn cow posted out to them. Supporting the show also helps promote worthy causes such as raising funds for sexual assault survivors, supporting those who choose to leave their religion, and least importantly making Ray Comfort say silly things. And if sharks came from tadpoles, why are there still goldfish? You can support the show for a few dollars a month by clicking the support tab at herdmentalitypodcast.com. 10% of the proceeds from the show go to kiva.org to help women in developing countries to further their education. It is an enormously time-consuming process, but with a few dollars a month, you can be a part of something that contributes to a progressive world and maybe even feel good about it in the process. Incoming transmission. Now they've triangulated my position and dispatched assassins. I must move to the next safe house. Enjoy the show. I'll contact you soon. Hi, I'm Jim Revo, author of The Champion of Reason. I'm going to read a section from Chapter 10 of the novel, in which the champ socks it to the anti-abortionists in the conference room at the Holiday Inn. But first I want to set the stage. The blue-clad outlaw who calls himself the champion of reason has already made four sword-wielding appearances since crashing the Duchess's exclusive masquerade party. One person, and one person only, has finally learned the real identity of the champ, an eccentric retired man, and that man is about to take it upon himself to help the blue swashbuckler by becoming his sidekick, the Orange Marauder. Well, I think that's all you need to know. Now for some bogus applause to help get me going with the reading. The members of the Adelton Right to Life Committee were seated at a long, narrow conference table, on top of which was literature received from the National Right to Life Committee. On the four walls around them were pictures of embryos at various stages of development, up to an 18-week-old fetus that was sucking its thumb. At either end of the conference table were Frank and Marge Button, proud parents of Davy Button, a 14-year-old profoundly retarded boy with a functional IQ of 21. During the first trimester of her pregnancy, Marge learned that there were some serious chromosomal defects, but she and her husband decided to go through with the pregnancy anyway, and they were happy that they did, because Davy, who stayed with 125 other developmentally disabled people at Balmy Valley Sunshine House under the care of doctors, nurses, nurses' aides, home health care aides, orderlies, case managers, speech therapists, psychologists, dietitians, cooks, cleaning people, transportation personnel, and recreation personnel, was now almost able to eat by himself. 
Between the buttons, going back and forth across the table, were Diane Ruth, Ruth Francis, Francis Rose, Rose Clark, Clark Jewell, Jewell Thomas, Thomas K., K. Smiley, and Smiley Williams III. The nine, saved in time by a stitch, were once again closely knit with the buttons for their monthly meeting to discuss their lobbying efforts to get abortion outlawed. Mayor Yarborough was, of course, the key to their success, but he was also the key to the success of the Pro-Choice Action Committee, and because both committees lobbied very hard and represented a lot of people who went to the polls as single-issue voters, the mayor had to be very careful to occupy middle ground, which he did by saying that he was personally opposed to abortion, but preferred to keep the government out of it and let each person follow their own conscience. Recently, the mayor seemed to be leaning to the right of middle ground. At a press conference, he was quoted as saying, I'll tell you what, I'd be mad as hell if my parents had had me aborted. The right-to-lifers were encouraged by the mayor's apparent support, even though he became the butt of jokes for committing such an unbelievable gaffe. Today's conference was about efforts to get legislation enacted that would acknowledge that a human embryo is a human being from the moment of conception, which they wanted to do so they could set up the following argument. A human embryo is a human being from the moment of conception. Killing a human being is murder. Therefore, killing a human embryo from the moment of conception is murder. There was some debate about whether an exception should be made if the mother's life is endangered, or if, as Thomas K. put it, a woman is gang-banged against her will. To the latter concern, Rose Clark, in front of whom was a specimen jar containing an eight-week-old fetus in formaldehyde, recounted how she had gone to the hospital room of a 12-year-old pregnant rape victim and, with the specimen jar for visual effects, pleaded with and finally persuaded the 7th grade girl that the minor discomfort she would experience during pregnancy and delivery would be nothing compared to the lifelong pain of guilt she would feel as a murderer. It was at this point that the buttons popped and the stitches ripped because the profound popper, the rational ripper, that is, the champion of reason, burst into the room with his sword drawn and a rope with slip knots on both ends coiled around his left forearm. Nobody move, he said. He put a noose over the inside door handle and came toward the table with his sword pointed at the committee members. Stay in your chairs and sit on your hands. Everybody did as they were ordered to do, and the champion of reason continued. You, scoot over there. Yes, I'm talking to you, in the Ralph Lauren shirt. Scoot over there. Frank Button started scooting, but because he was sitting on his hands, he wasn't able to balance himself, and he toppled over backward onto the floor. While being ordered back into his chair and back onto his hands, Smiley Williams III ducked down under the table. The champion of reason stepped forward to the head of the table where Frank Button had been sitting. He extended his sword until the point touched Rose Clark's specimen jar. A moment later, what had been a jar was a million indiscernible pieces of glass on the floor, with the fetus among them. The champion of reason threw the other end of the rope across the table. You over there with the platinum blonde hair, put the noose around the leg of your chair. Tilt your chair up to one side so you can do it. Yes, you can use your hands. Pull the end until it's taut. Kay Smiley did as she was ordered to do, and then sat on her hands again, as she was also ordered to do. Okay, the champion of reason said. Now listen. Humans evolved along an evolutionary lineage that split only about 15 million years ago from the lineage that led to the evolution of chimpanzees. Think about that. 15 million years is a relatively very short time in the history of evolution, which is why humans and chimpanzees are about 98% genetically identical. 
So take a good look at chimpanzees the next time you go to the zoo and understand that they are less intelligent than you only because the cerebral cortex didn't develop as much along the lineage leading to chimpanzees as it did along the lineage leading to humans. If it had, if the greater development of the cerebral cortex had occurred along the lineage leading to chimpanzees, then chimpanzees might have made zoos and humans might have been one of the attractions in the cages. Think about that. Think about it until it sinks in. Then you'll be getting somewhere. Under the table, Smiley Williams III could see the champion of reason from his knees down. The knee pads, the long underwear bottoms, the baggy socks, the high-cut tennis shoes, and the frog's feet. A very smart chimpanzee may be as intelligent as a four-year-old child, but that's about the limit, because chimpanzees simply don't have the necessary brain equipment to go much further. That's what it comes down to, brain equipment. Listen. In the frontal lobe of the left hemisphere of the human cerebral cortex, there is a particular network of cells that enables language. So humans can learn language, whereas chimpanzees can't do much more than learn a very limited number of words and use some nonverbal communication methods to put some word combinations together to get a desired effect. It's because of this particular network of cells that early humans, and Homo erectus before them, could go far beyond innate communication and refer to concepts by making agreed-upon sounds and thereby give those sounds meaning. In case you haven't figured it out, I'm talking about spoken words. Smiley Williams III was suddenly struck with the idea of crawling along the length of the table until he had reached the feet of the champion of reason, and then untying the blue swashbuckler's shoes and tying the laces together so that he would trip when making his exit and then be easily captured. Words are wonderful because we can use them to say things, but whoever said that it is better to remain quiet and be thought a fool than to talk and leave no doubt was right. You people, and about 99% of the people out there, leave no doubt. I wish you'd all shut up. I'm sick and tired of listening to your foolishness. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves for not taking your thinking to a higher level and carefully considering the words you use and the statements you make. Very deliberately and very slowly, so not to make the slightest sound, Smiley Williams III began crawling on all fours along the length of the long table. If we're going to discuss and debate issues for the purpose of making good decisions so we can make society better, then we ought to be very careful about the words we use and the statements we make. You, with the right-to-life button on the lapel of your jacket, suppose that there was a wax figure of a frog, and suppose that a person believed that it was a real frog. Would that person's belief be true or false? False, answered Clark Jewell. So if that person said that the wax figure was a frog, would that person's statement be true or false? False. Why? Because a wax figure of a frog is not a real frog. But suppose that another person who knows that it is a wax figure nevertheless says that it is a frog. Would that person be misusing the word frog? Yes. You, with the fancy earrings, what is a frog? You can stop shaking. Nothing bad is going to happen to you, as long as you don't do anything stupid. Answer the question. They're green, they've got four legs, and they can jump really far answered a very frightened Ruth Francis. "'You ought to go to work on Webster's Dictionary staff,' the champion of reason replied. Then he reached into the back pocket of his cut-off jeans and took out and unfolded a sheet of paper. On it was a picture of a glob of about sixteen cells that was about the size of a fifty-cent piece. "'You people like to show pictures, so I'm going to give you a dose of your own medicine, which I think is going to be hard for you to swallow.' I have here a picture of something that's been magnified 300 times. Here, you take it and then pass it around. 
Everybody, keep sitting on your hands until the person next to you passes you the picture. And after you pass it, sit on your hands again. Inch by inch, Smiley Williams III kept creeping toward the feet of the unsuspecting champion of reason. You, the guy with the perm, is it green? No, said Thomas K. Does it have four legs? No. Can it jump really far? No. Then it's not a frog, is it? But, said Marge Button, seeing what she believed to be the point of the argument, it will become a frog. No, it won't, the champion of reason answered. It's a picture of what will become a human. You now have one strike against you. You'd better be more careful. Two more strikes and you're out. The champion of reason reached into his pants pocket again and took out two more sheets of paper, one with a picture of a chimpanzee and the other with a picture of a human. He put them on the table in front of Felicity Ruth. You, unfold them and lay them out in the center of the table, and then sit on your hands again. Okay. Now you, with the penciled-in eyebrows, yes, you, with one strike against you, tell us what they are. This one is a chimpanzee, and that one is a human being, Marge Button said. Are you absolutely certain that that one is not a wax figure of a human being? Remember, you have one strike against you. You're trying to trick me. No, I'm not. I'm just asking you a question. So it's a wax figure of a human being. You ought to learn to use the expression, I don't know. It's a good expression to use, especially when it's true. By using it, you would be getting somewhere. But as it is, you've got two strikes against you. One more strike and you're out. Taking care not to cut himself on pieces of broken glass that ended up under the table, Smiley Williams III kept creeping towards the frog's-footed feet of the champion of reason. The champion of reason took another folded-up sheet of paper out of his pants pocket and continued. All living things, whether animals or plants, are classified according to physical characteristics, and it's for zoologists, not people like you with ulterior motives, to do the classifying. A wax figure of a human is not a human because it doesn't have the physical characteristics of a human. Now, here's another picture of something that's been magnified 2,500 times. He unfolded the paper and tossed it in the center of the table. You, with the chain around your neck, does it have the physical characteristics of a human? No, answered Rose Clark. Does it even remotely resemble a human? No. So is it a human? You want me to say no. I want you to use words properly and not be like Humpty Dumpty, who told Alice that he used words with whatever meanings he felt like giving them. That is clearly not a picture of a human, and if you say that it is, then you are misusing the word human. Of course, it is your prerogative to be like Humpty Dumpty and call it a human. It is also my prerogative to be like Humpty Dumpty and call it a hippopotamus. But what would be the point? In your case, it's perfectly clear what the point is. But calling it a human doesn't make it a human any more than calling it a hippopotamus makes it a hippopotamus. It is what it is, no matter what it is called. Shakespeare said a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. He was right, and so am I when I say that humans by any other name would be just as foolish. That happens to be a picture of a two-week-old human embryo, which means that the term human embryo is such that the statement, it is a picture of a human embryo, is true, whereas the meaning of the word human is such that the statement, it is a picture of a human, 
is false. For you to try to make a falsehood a truth by resorting to Humpty Dumpty-like legal tactics in order to validate your argument is a joke. Let's not play linguistic games. That's not going to get us anywhere. Let's use words with their proper meanings so we can understand each other. If you have a good, solid argument in support of your strong feelings, then let's hear it. If you don't, then do society a favor and shut up instead of carrying on like religious fanatics who try to make their rationally unfounded feelings the laws of the land. You, with the chain around your neck, does that chain happen to have a crucifix at the end of it? Yes. How do you know? said Rose Clark. Never mind. Unless you've got a good, solid argument, I couldn't care less about your strong feelings. I'm not the champion of strong feelings. I'm the champion of reason. Smiley Williams III finally reached the head of the table and the feet of the champion of reason. He was just starting to untie the champion of reason's shoes when an odd voice arose. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Everybody, including the champion of reason, turned and saw a strangely dressed man at the door, who was able to enter because, unlike the door to the Adelton Central High classroom, the door to the Holiday Inn conference room opened toward the inside of the room, so the taut rope tied to the inside door handle made no difference whatsoever. The intruder was wearing a 1940-style football helmet, an orange mask, a white long underwear top with a black OM on the front, an orange cape that matched the mask, gray shorts with orange ribbons hanging out of the pockets over white long underwear bottoms, and black winter boots zipped up all the way. Several of the pro-lifers shrieked because he had a crossbow with which he was taking aim at Smiley Williams III. Smiley sheepishly crawled back along the length of the table and got back into his chair, although he made a point of turning sideways for a beaver shot from Jewel Thomas before coming up from under the table. Have no fear, your sidekick, the orange marauder, is here, the enigmatic character said to the champion of reason. The champion of reason was shocked, but he was not frightened, because he knew who the orange marauder was, so he was able to regain his composure and continue. Your strong feeling that aborting human embryos and fetuses is wrong is derived from your strong feeling about human life which you think is sacred because of a Judeo-Christian belief that humans occupy the rung between angels and all other animals on the hierarchical ladder of life. But let's face the facts. Angels are on the same rung with leprechauns, fairies, unicorns, and Santa Claus, and humans are just another product of evolution. True, humans are by far the most intelligent of all animals. So, if we use intelligence as the criterion for the hierarchy, we can truthfully say that humans are the highest— but understand that it depends on the criterion. If we use running speed as the criterion, we would have to say that cheetahs are the highest. And if we use the sense of smell as the criterion, we would have to say that German sheepdogs are the highest. Humans are the most intelligent of all animals because they have the most developed cerebral cortex, which, like the legs of cheetahs and the olfactory system of German sheepdogs, is a product of evolution. The orange marauder cleared his throat to urge the champion of reason to hurry up. But the blue swashbuckler was just getting warmed up. If the greater development of the cerebral cortex had occurred instead along the evolutionary lineage leading to chimpanzees, then chimps instead of chumps no doubt would have become religious. And then they probably would have believed that they were sacred. And perhaps there would have been religious groups that believed that chimps were created in God's image. And maybe there would have been certain groups that believed that they were God's chosen chimps. And then chimpanzees would have overrated themselves as foolishly as humans have done. It's no wonder that Galileo was persecuted. After all, he had the audacity to say that we don't occupy center stage. But he was right. We don't. 
Earth is not at the center of the solar system, nor is the solar system at the center of the Milky Way. The orange marauder cleared his throat again, this time louder and longer, but the champion of reason held out his left hand with a don't-be-in-such-a-hurry gesture and continued. Earth is off to one side of the Milky Way, about 30,000 light-years from the center. It's just a speck within the Milky Way, and it's not even a centered speck. And the Milky Way, which is just a speck within the billions of galaxies that comprise the universe, isn't a centered speck either. There's nothing center stage about where we are, nor is there anything so important about it. If Earth were to be destroyed, the sun would keep on shining. The other stars would too. There would still be lights. The universal show would still go on. It wasn't a big deal when Earth came into existence, and it won't be a big deal when it goes out of existence. It's just a speck within a speck within a speck. The loss of Earth would really be no loss at all. It, and what goes on on it, is really insignificant in the universal scheme of things. So it came into existence from stellar debris about 4.6 billion years ago. So what? So organic molecules form from atomic reactions. So what? So cells formed and plants and animals evolved. So what? So a primate evolved with a brain with which it could create language. So what? So those primates created religions. So what? So they think there's something special. So what? Stop kidding yourselves. You're really not so special. So your argument against abortion falls apart at its foundation, as does the argument against capital punishment. They're not based on reason. They're based only on strong feelings. People opposed to the death penalty say things like, it's better that nine guilty murders be set free than for one innocent person to be executed. But they don't consider the consequences of those murders being set free, just as you don't consider the consequences of millions of unwanted babies being born and raised in environments that, more often than not, would sooner or later make them a burden instead of a benefit to society. But I didn't come here today to defend abortion. Although if I had, I wouldn't stoop to the stupidity of saying that what a woman does with her body is her business, because what is growing in the uterus of a pregnant woman and receiving nourishment from her is clearly not part of her body. The orange marauder cleared his throat again, this time so loudly and for so long that it sounded like he was having an asthmatic attack. But the champion of reason looked at him and said, Take it easy, orange marauder. And then he turned back to the group of eleven. I came here today to defend reason. I came to defend it against lousy arguing, which abounds on both sides of the abortion issue, as it does with virtually every other issue. You keep babbling about the sacredness of human life, and the pro-choice people are foolish enough to agree, but want to make viability the criterion. So back and forth you go. You talk about genes, they talk about acorns and oak trees. You talk about pain, they talk about public opinion polls. But who's talking about consequences? If you ever get around to basing moral judgments solely on the basis of the consequences, then you'll be getting somewhere. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that ethics should be a science, a science that studies both the short-term and long-term consequences to know, not feel, whether actions are good or bad, and which, because consequences are often difficult to ascertain, requires examining the relevant data with a reasoning brain instead of with a bleeding heart. The orange marauder let out a sigh of discontent but was ignored. If you want to argue that unborn babies, as you Humpty Dumpty-like prefer to call them, should have the right to life, then give your reasons. I'll listen, but appeal to my reason, not to my emotions. Don't bother pointing out that a four-week-old embryo has a beating heart, because I know that a beating heart is not your real criterion. You over there, how do you like your steak? Rare, medium, or well done? Medium well, replied Frank Button. 
But cows have beating hearts, and cow fetuses, and even cow embryos in the later stages have beating hearts too. But cows aren't humans. I knew you were going to say that because I know that your real criterion is sacredness. Just answer one more question, and only one more. If you were a Hindu, do you think, I don't eat beef, interrupted Felicity Ruth. I'm a vegetarian. I don't care if you are or you aren't, and I certainly didn't ask you. If you interrupt me again, you'll wish that you hadn't. But tell me, are you a vegetarian for moral reasons? Yes, and also for my health. Do you think that the fellow over there who prefers his steak medium well is being immoral to some extent insofar as he eats beef? I can't say. You stated that you don't eat beef for moral reasons and also for health reasons. That implies, at least on the issue of beef eating, that you think you are more morally conscious and health conscious than Mr. Beef Eater over there. So I'll ask you again. Do you think that he's being immoral to some extent for eating beef? That's for him to decide. That sounds like the ballyhoo in your opposition's camp. So you're pro-life when it comes to humans, but pro-choice when it comes to cows. Is that right? You're trying to put words in my mouth. I'm trying to put sense in your head. I'm launching a crusade, and there's nothing religious about it. I'm calling upon reasonable people to join me in the struggle against the fools so we can win the war against them and make society better. I'm the foe of folly. I'm the champion of reason. The champion of reason returned his sword to the scabbard and nodded to the orange marauder. The orange marauder muttered, finally, and opened the door for his leader. But before the champion of reason got to the door, he turned back around and addressed Marge Button. You, with the penciled-in eyebrows, here's a question for you. One of the early settlers in Australia asked an aborigine what a particular animal was, and the aborigine replied, kangaroo. Why? Because the animal was a kangaroo. No, in the aboriginal language, kangaroo meant, I don't know. Guess what? What? That's three strikes. You're out. The champion of reason threw a smoke bomb between himself and the table and the orange marauder followed suit by throwing another smoke bomb, and then a stink bomb, and then an egg at Marge Button. And then the two intruders exited from the smoky, stinky conference room and fled as fast as they could out of the Holiday Inn. Well, that's the end of the reading. Some bogus applause might be in order. Thanks for listening. Please visit my website again at jimreva.com. That's J-I-M-R-I-V-A.